Welcome to the Central Community Church Podcast. We exist to be authentic followers of Jesus, leading others to follow Him by loving God, loving people, and serving our world. Um, I want to say to you, I have never been so eager to start a new sermon series in my life. (laughs) This is a great morning. We are going to go from um, some pretty heavy stuff that you were so wonderful with this fall. Thank you for um, diving into that. We're moving into an Advent series this morning, and uh, it is a wonderful uh, turn. Um, When I uh, had graduated high school, done a year of college, I started to work um, building trusses, and I had to drive out of town to do this, and I just went into this warehouse and stood on this... um, uh, kind of form all day and, and, and built trust frames and did that over and over again, and I didn't love it. And, uh, you know, I try and be relatable to uh, the, you guys who work trades, you know, and just pretend like I know what you're talking about. Um, yesterday, I tried to uh, buy some staples for a staple gun so I could put up the Christmas lights, and I bought some staples. They, they looked like they were right. I went and I, I opened the, the slot to the staple gun thing. I, I set the staples on it, tried to close it, and it wouldn't close. I was like, oh, I got the wrong ones. Went back, got a different size, and opened up the, the cartridge, and put the staples on and tried to close it. It wouldn't close. So the next time I went home, like three times, I went to the hardware store, and uh, this is my world. Um, it's also Emily's world, and she just shakes her head. Uh, and... Uh, I took it and I'm like, I don't know what the deal is. And he opened the cartridge, then he placed the staples into the staple gun and closed the cartridge. And he, here you go. Oh, that's how you put them in. Okay. So anyways, that's a little bit about me. I'm putting up the Christmas lights later today. Pray for me. Um, pray for my family. Uh, so um, that's me. And so it's the only job, though, that I just decided one day I'm not going anymore. I don't know if any of you had a job like that. Like a, a day came when I'm like, I, I'm done. I actually had a lot of stuff. I had some of my gear at this job site and I was like, it's not even worth it. I'm, I, I so don't want to go back to this job that I'm not getting in the car. I'm not driving. I'm not even getting my stuff. Not, not even one more day. Forget the pay that's owed. I'm just done. I walked away. Um, and uh, I moved out of town and then I had to get another job. And so you have to build a resume. And you know what I didn't put on my resume? that trust job where I was there for like two or three months and just was like, I'm out. And I obviously didn't put the foreman from that job as one of my references. You you pretend that didn't happen. Um, That was many, many years ago. I would never do such a thing now, right? And so all of that. But um, what I found as I begin to study this series we're starting is that genealogies in the Bible and in um, this time period in antiquity um, people would do this with their genealogies because their, their genealogy was their resume. It's the ancient resume. Meaning you didn't say which job you did before which job and which job and here's three people that say nice things about me. You, th- what you would do is say, this is my dad and this is my dad's dad and this is my dad's dad's dad and on it would go and they'd go, oh, that's who you are and, and, and that was your resume. What's so interesting is that in this time period, we're going to look at the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1 in a moment, is that it was actually very common to... Um, kind of ignore some parts of the resume, if you will. Like if, you, if there was a black eye in the family line, it was really common when you came to genealogy to just, well, let's pretend that didn't happen, or let's change the language a little bit, and, and maybe people won't recognize who 
I'm talking about there, and we'll just move by. And so what's so fascinating about the genealogy of Jesus you will see this morning, and you'll continue to see it this Advent season, is that Matthew in, the gospel, in his gospel does exactly the opposite. Oh, there's a black eye in our history? I'm going to shine a light on it. So let's take a look. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew 1. It's the very first book of the New Testament, about two-thirds of the way into your Bible. Right off the top, the very first chapter, it says this, the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, delicious, Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king, and David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. Let's jump down to verse 16, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. John Bloom is exactly right when he says, buried in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew, chapter 1 is a gospel treasure. I don't know what the treasure is and the genealogy, name after name after name after name, that when you're doing a Bible reading plan, this just horrifies you when you get to these sections. But you know what the, the, the gospel treasure buried in Matthew 1, the genealogy is? That treasure is five women, he says. Their inclusion in the list is notable because it's a patrilineal genealogy. In other words, it's a record of fathers and sons. But what do we find? I wouldn't even say buried. What do we find in the genealogy that's meant to shine a light on stories in our Bible? Messy stories, dirty stories, scandalous stories. We find that Matthew's actually making pains to show us, to remind us of the stories going on. Timothy Keller just came out with a new book called Hidden Christmas, and in it he refers to this genealogy. He agrees with me, uh, which is nice. Uh, Because genealogies were patrilineal, right, fathers and their sons, these five women found in this genealogy were gender outsiders, if you will. And most of the women in the the genealogy were Gentiles. We're talking about Tamar this morning. Uh, We'll talk about um, Rahab. We'll talk about Ruth. These are all Gentiles. So they were also racial outsiders, And as you will see this Advent season, it's very Advent-like, you will see stories of a woman who disguised herself as a prostitute, and a prostitute, one who was a prostitute, a woman who was sexually abused, and another who was an engaged pregnant teen. So not only were they gender outsiders and racial outsiders, they were also cultural outsiders. That's got a nice Christmas feel to it, hey? Everybody going to be ready for the holidays as we walk through this? It does actually have a great Christmas feel. Because what God has accomplished through the sending of His Son is this. He has taken the outsiders and He's brought them in. He has taken our scandalous lives, and we will see a lot of scandal this Advent. 
He's taken our scandalous lives and offered scandalous grace in Jesus Christ. And it's only possible because of the incarnation that Jesus came in the first place to redeem. It's only possible because of his incarnation, because of his life, and because of the finished work of Jesus Christ that outsiders can be brought in and scandalous people can be offered scandalous grace that redeems. Let me pray and then we're going to dive into Tamar's story. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming to our rescue. Thank you, Lord. I, I say thank you this morning for a messed up chapter in the Bible like Genesis 38 that we're going to look at. Because it reminds us that we're not so unclean that we cannot approach you. We're not so um, lost, so far from your love and your grace that we cannot be reached. Lord, you step into such mess and hold up the hope that's found in the gospel of Jesus. Thank you, God. I pray that you would preach it to us this morning from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to paraphrase some of Genesis 38 this morning, but if you would like um, quite the read this morning, you can read all of Genesis, or later today you can read all of Genesis 38 later. I'll paraphrase it and then read selectively from it. We pick up Genesis 38. That's where you can move in your Bibles if you'd like, and we'll, we'll, we'll land there for the morning. Um, this falls on the heels of Judah and his brothers um, um, selling their brother Joseph into slavery, whom they hated. And then it picks up, and right after that, in, in chapter 38, after that happening, um, and, and this chapter starts with Judah moving away from his family and marrying a Canaanite woman named Shua. So he's doing a lot of things that he really shouldn't be doing. These were, these were a, a special people of God, and he's moving away from this family. This, this family of significance from the line of Abraham, and he's moving away and he's marrying a Canaanite woman. And this is odd because family stuck together at that time, and because of the sins of a couple of his older brothers, he was going to receive the eldest's inheritance, the lion's share of the inheritance. But off he goes, leaves his family, and he was gone long enough to have three sons and for them to grow up. And this is where the story starts to get quite weird is his eldest son, Ur, um, marries Tamar. It says in Genesis 38, 7, But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. I want you to notice it doesn't say that Ur did something wicked. It says that, it says that Ur was wicked, and God judged him for his wickedness, and he died. And then Judah takes um, um, Tamar, the wife of Ur, and gives her to um, his second oldest son, Onan. Now, this is what's called Le Leverite marriage, and this was appropriate at that time. It seems so odd to us, but there was purpose for it, as if, if a, a, a young woman is, does not have kids and becomes a widow, it is the duty of of uh, the brother to give her children because that really is her retirement. That's who will protect her. That's who will 
care for her, that's who will provide for her needs when she gets old. And so she had no protection apart from that. So it was the, the role of the brother to give her children. And, and what we see in Genesis 38 verse 9 is that Onan uses some old school birth control, unbeknownst to Tamar, un, unbeknownst to the dad, and does not get her pregnant because he doesn't want to get her pregnant. And the reason is his selfishness. Because if Tamar were to have a son, Tamar's son would be, have all the rights of the eldest because it was truly Ur's son. And so Onan's here, and he's got his own boys, and he's like, I don't want that. I don't want the small parcel of land. I want the lion's share of the land. I want all the rights and privileges that come to the eldest son. And so he does not um, do what he is supposed to as the brother in Leverite marriage. And so, um, so that is happening, and then it says that what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord. This is something that he did that was wicked. God, God judged him and put him to death. And then it comes to Genesis 38, 11. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, after these two sons of his have died, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. And then it tells us, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Um, we don't get all of that means typically at, in fir at first glance, but here's what's going on. Judah sends her back to her own family in widow's garments falsely promising his son Sheila to her when he's older, when in fact he has no plans of doing that and is breaking the Leverite marriage right. At this point, Judah thinks that the common denominator in all that's been going on is Tamar, not her sons, not his sons. And what he could have done was allow her to go home single, just she would have still been relatively young to go home single, not betrothed, so she could marry again and have a life. But what he's actually doing is placing a life sentence on her to widowhood without sons to protect and provide for her with no intention of ever doing that. And so just to speed up the story a little bit, one day Tamar sees Sheila all grown up and realizes that Judah has no intention of giving to her, her to him in marriage. So then she does something that, this, it only gets stranger, she takes off her widow's garments and gets in, a, in prostitute's apparel, covers her face, and stands where she knows that Judah, who's a recent widower, will be walking, and obviously knows that he sleeps with prostitutes, and so there she stands, disguised as a prostitute, and he comes along and propositions her. And she says, what will you give me? And he says, a young goat. And so, uh, there's just, there's nothing to say. Uh, right. um, talk about foreign, right? Um, and she so says, well, what will you give me in the meantime? Because you don't have a young goat with you. And he's like, well, what, like, what do you think? And she says, well, give me a pledge. Give me your signet, your cord, and your staff. And so a signet was a, 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 the small seal that was worn with a cord around one's neck. It would hang there, and you would use that for business transactions and all kinds of things. And so really, essentially, he's giving her his, his driver's license and his credit card until he brings the young goat instead of using credit card or whatever. Anyways, so he sends his friend back after this 
takes place with the goat. And it's a little bit comical because he doesn't want to go himself with the young goat. He sends his friend with the young goat. He knows what he's done is wrong. And so he's sending the friend, his buddy, bring, take the young goat to the prostitute that I met out on that road over there. And he goes and there's no prostitute there. And the friend is like, anybody seen the prostitute who stands here? Um, I've got a young goat. My friend Judah brought this goat. It's a young goat from Judah. Saw a prostitute here, and they're like, well, there, there's never a prostitute that stands there, is, is what these people are saying. And so eventually he comes back, he's like, I was asking around everywhere, saying that you met a prostitute here, offering the young goat, nobody's seen one. And it literally says, Judah said, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. Just stop, man, just let her have the stuff, be quiet. And then it the story carries on. Genesis 38, verse 24, about three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. Now, this is foreign to us. It happens in other parts of the world today. There are Christians who are being burned to death. It happens. But even in this time, Judah's reaction is shockingly harsh. Judah just goes there. Bring her out, let her be burned. Why? My, two of my sons died because of her. And now she's supposed to be wearing her widow's garments at her father's house and she's pregnant? Bring her out. Right? Judgment is swift. She deserves wrath. Goes on, Genesis 38, verse 24, uh, verse 25. And she, as she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Verse 26, then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Sheila, and he did not know her again. And she bore twin boys. So there's the story. <laughs> First, I want to say this. There is hope for those who have experienced injustice. Judah wronged her, wronged Tamar, by blaming her for the death of her sons when it was actually the wickedness of his sons. Rather than freer to go back home unmarried with the hope of remarriage, he sent her home in widow's clothing and under a false pretense that he would give his third son to provide her with children, which he was never planning on doing. Therefore, she was betrothed to a man who was never going to marry her. And at that time, there was no one more vulnerable than a childless widow. And Judah condemned her as that. Judah's treatment of Tamar was unjust because it left her without a husband or a son, no security blanket, no protection, complete vulnerability, total injustice. Now listen, justice, seeing and responding to injustice is a theme we see of God throughout all of Scripture. In fact, James 1 talks about what true religion is, true religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this. 
to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. You want to know when you boil it all down what real, genuine faith looks like? Keeping yourself unstained from the world and visiting orphans and widows in their affliction. And a sign of relationship with Jesus Christ is that we care about the things He cares about. We are to care about the things God cares about. Victimization, injustice, objectification, all the things that flood in, all the wrongs that were committed against people because sin exists in the world. And as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we are invited as ministers of reconciliation to step into the darkness with the light of the gospel, shine a floodlight on the injustices that are taking place and seek to redeem them. Isaiah 1.14 says this, Quite the indictment. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. True religion, a sign of having encountered Jesus in a life-transforming way, is that we have a heart for the things he cares about. And God cares about the vulnerable the oppressed, the disenfranchised, the poor. Can I give a little bit of a modern twist on Isaiah 1? It's easy to be pro-life and against abortion. It's easy. It's right to be against abortion and to be pro-life, sure, yes. We should be. The sanctity of human life is beautiful and wonderful and important, and we should guard it. But it's easy to be pro-life. It's harder to invest in the life of a vulnerable teenage girl who feels like she's got no option and to step into that and to show her that there are options. Do you see the difference between a placard waving and getting into the trenches and offering a vulnerable teen an option? It's easy, in a sense, to be opposed to gay marriage because of the clarity of Scripture, because of the clarity of Scripture on the subject. But it's harder to go through the process of fighting side by side with the LGBT community for rights equality. Like I don't think that marriage should be redefined. But everybody is made in the image of God, and there are many opportunities for us to link arms with the LGBT community and seek for their dignity and equality in areas where we can love them well. It's even easy to sing songs at church. It's harder to make our spare rooms available for the displaced. Shane Claiborne um, does amazing ministry in inner-city Philadelphia. He makes his own clothes. He's a pretty weird dude, but I, I really appreciate him. Um, and he said, look, it's not... He wrote a book, and, and he said, it's not that rich Christians don't care about the poor. It's just that they don't know the poor. <laughs> I think they have all the best intentions in the world, he says. It's just that they don't actually know them. 
But I want to say God has, in history, used the church like no other movement to build hospitals, universities. Did you know all the Ivy League schools in the States started as seminaries? Universities, shelters, aid organizations, and recovery programs. And we are thrilled as a church to be a part of a lot of that kind of work. And you know what happens as we volunteer at the Cyrus Center and at the Ed Center and Ruth and Naomi's and the Food Bank and the Salvation Army is that we actually meet people who walk through the doors who are, have experienced such injustice, are so oppressed, are so victimized, and they're not invisible to us anymore. But we can come to know them love them, serve them, and see them restored. And I praise God for every opportunity that so many in our church have had by volunteering in those places to know and love and serve the poor, the vulnerable, the hurting. I I am so encouraged by you. I mean, that's why we do backpacks of hope every year. We ask the Ed Center, look, tell us who the most vulnerable students you have are, the ones who literally over Christmas break will not eat. And we find out who they are and what you place in those backpacks create the most extravagant hampers of food and gifts and kindness. And they are delivered. And because you're so generous, there's always leftovers. And those go to the Cyrus Center. And in Agassiz, we, 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 we work to serve in that community there and give the most vulnerable um, these great encouragements in this season. But God has a preferential option for the poor. That's a theological way of talking about this special sympathy that God and compassion we see in the Scriptures over and over again for the poor, the foreigner, the marginalized. And as God's people, as we spend more time with Jesus, we will share that heart more and more. But that's not the only thing I want to say about those who have experienced injustice. There truly is hope for those who have experienced injustice. And I know in this room, there are many in your lives, in your history, in your past, maybe even in your present, who are experiencing or have experienced such injustice against you, such wrong, such evil. And it's natural in those times to say, where is God? What, does he, what is He doing? Does He care? Does He see? Does He know? Will He intervene? And one of my favorite verses to read when I, when I think along those lines is Psalm 56, verse 8. And I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation because I think it gets it right here. It says this about God, You keep track of all my sorrows. You have collected all all my tears in your bottle. For me, that's a lot of tears. And um, you have recorded each one in your book. Where are you, God? Do you see this? Do you know? Do you care? Will you do something? He keeps track of all your sorrows. He keeps every tear that floods out of your eye sockets into a bottle. And he records each one, each sorrow, each hurt, each wrong you've experienced in his book. Oh, he knows and he loves you. Jesus speaks the same way in Acts because of the fact that you, if you know Jesus, you're Christ's blood-bought 
bride. And in Acts 9, when Jesus confronts Saul, who becomes the Apostle Paul, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus so identifies with you that it's as if the harm that's been done against you has been done against him as your eldest brother, as you being his younger brother, younger sister. Every wrong that's been done to you, Jesus says to that transgressor, why are you persecuting me? He so identifies with you. And then there's the hope of glorification. We await Christ's coming in the incarnation. There's such hope for the Christian in glorification, his coming again. Revelation 21 says he will wipe away. This is coming for all who believe. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So much so that to the point that somehow our joy one day will somehow be more full for having gone through the injustice and come through the other side healed by Jesus. In other words, the hurts, the wrongs, the injustices that have been done against you, somehow in glory, His grace, His mercy, His love, His pursuit of you will only be sweeter for all eternity for having brought you through the other side of all the things that have happened in your life, the sins that have been waged against you. In other words, there is hope for every person in the room who has experienced injustice done against you. The story of Tamar speaks of it. But the story doesn't stop there either. Not only that, there is hope for every person in the room who has not only experienced injustice, but who has been unjust. Not only have we been victims, but we've victimized. Not only are we those who have been greatly sinned against, but we have all sinned greatly. So point number two, there is hope for those who blame others for their own sin. This is what Judah did. It's Tamar is the reason my son Ur is dead. It's Tamar is the reason Onan is dead. It's Tamar and her sin because she has gotten pregnant. He blames and he blames and he blames. Where did he learn that from? Where did you learn that from? Our oldest parents, Adam and Eve, were made in the image of God in this perfect garden, in perfect um, relationship with God. They, they chatted as they wandered the garden together. Perfection. And Satan, disguised as a serpent, comes along and whispers in their ears, if you just eat of this fruit, then you would be like God. And then your eyes would be opened. And so they do it, and instantly they feel naked, they feel ashamed, and they run and hide. And God pursues Adam and says, what's going on? Why have you done this? And he says, it's Eve. It's this woman you gave me. It, I'm just, I was just trying to be a good husband. He goes to Eve. What have you done? It's the serpent. This serpent is so crafty. And ever since, it's been, it wasn't me. Every time we're confronted with our sin, it must be someone else's fault. And where this blame ultimately goes is we are so willing not to be the ones at fault, but to be fault finders, that we'll even do it to God. This blame ultimately goes towards God. Proverbs 19.3 says, when a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. When a man's folly brings him to ruin, his own stuff that he did ruins him. 
his heart rages against the Lord. It's your fault. In the book Memoir of a Cutter, it reads, I started to wonder if God really existed. The world seemed so empty and lonely for there to be a God in it. But I figured he must exist because I kept blaming everything on him. Do you ever blame others for your sin? I'm helped by this list that a pastor named Josh Keller has written about blame, has spoken about about blame. Let me list a few. I relate. Maybe you can jump on the train with me. Anger. I wouldn't lose my temper if my coworkers were easier to get along with, or if my kids were better behaved, or if my spouse was more considerate. I wouldn't be angry if those things weren't different, if those people weren't different. Impatience. I'd be a very patient person if it weren't for all the traffic jams, the bad drivers, the long lines in the store. If I didn't have so much to do, if people weren't keeping me so busy, if my boss wasn't making me do all this, I would be a patient person. Lust. I'd have a pure mind if there weren't so many sexual images in our culture. Right? this idea, I'd just be whistling hymns and fantasizing about how I could bless people if it weren't for all the billboard ads and the pop-up, you know, ads. It's the culture I live in. I'm a victim of it and cannot help it. Anxiety. I wouldn't be anxious if my life were a little more secure, if I had a little more money, or if I didn't have these health issues. I wouldn't be anxious. Spiritual apathy. My spiritual life would be so much more vibrant and I'd struggle with sin less if my life group were more encouraging or if church were more engaging or if the music on Sundays was more lively or if the music on Sundays was less lively or if the sermons were better. Fair, fair. That I'm meh about God is their fault. Critical spirit. It's not my fault that people around me are ignorant. It's not my fault that they just don't do it right. It's not my fault that they're inexperienced. Bitterness. If you knew what that person did to me, then you'd understand my right to be bitter. How could I forgive something like that? Gossip. The people around me start the conversations, and there's no way to avoid hearing what other people happen to say. When others ask me questions, I can't avoid sharing what I know. They're just, they're talking, and I'm there, and they're asking, so I'm just telling them. Self-pity. I'll never be happy because my marriage, my family, my job, my ministry is so difficult. Selfishness. I would be more generous if I had more money. This is a world that we create for ourselves. And it's a world where we are not responsible for our sin because it's 
everyone else's fault, even God's. And we'd sooner blame God than get real about the depths of our own sin. Verse 25 again, and she was brought out. As she was brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. This word, please identify, is, is a Hebrew word called hakar na, which means examine, or hakar means examine, and na puts emphasis on it, so it's kind of like emphatic investigation, emphatically, em, em, whose are these? Please identify them, this, this emphatic examination. Whose are these? It's really interesting that she uses that word because Judah just used it in Genesis chapter 37, where he takes the blood of a goat and pours it on Joseph's technicolor dream coat and brings it to his dad and says, Hakarna, examine this. Whose is it? And by Genesis chapter 38, Tamar comes along as she's being brought out to be burned at the hands of Judah and she says, Hakarna, examine these because whose they are is the one who has done this to me. And then his response, it's really interesting. Judah deceived Jacob with a goat, and Tamar deceived Judah with a goat, and then declared the same word that he had used to his dad, passing the blame, shifting the gaze, hakarna. And in that moment, as she says that word, it hits him. She wasn't to blame he was. She is more righteous than I. It just floods in. He gets it. He sees it. He's been dodging it. He hasn't been owning a single thing. Till that moment, the blinders came off. Look, Tamar is, her hands aren't clean in this. Doesn't say that Tamar is righteous. It says, she's more righteous than I, and I'm not righteous. But it's an acknowledgement of his guilt. So listen, I want to say as we conclude, there is hope in the gospel for both victims and victimizers. See, Tamar was faithful to the covenant family, even when Judah wasn't. She was the wrong wife. She was a Canaanite. He was from this line of promise but saves her family, even though she was an outsider, by her loyalty to it. And God uses her son Perez in the line to the Messiah and to spark the beginning of Judah's transformation. This links to a whole Bible theme that God uses the most unlikely subjects for the working out of his redemptive purposes in the world. Have you been victimized? God wants to use you. God wants to heal you. God can draw you in. God can redeem you. He proves it in the story of Tamar. This story also marks the regeneration in Judah's life. Genesis chapter 38 is Judah's salvation story. He went from selling his brother into slavery in Genesis chapter 37 to offering up his own life in his brother's place as a substitute in Genesis chapter 44. What happened between the two? Genesis chapter 38 happened. He examined 
his own heart for once and saw how sinful it was. How such transformation? God met Judah in his repentance in Genesis 38 and changed his heart. And we are called to do the same. Have you victimized people? Have you wronged people? Is that what you're known for? Is that what you've done? Is that the roadblock in your life that's wrecking everything? You've victimized people. There's hope for you this Advent season. There is. Judah is a testimony of that. If you're anything like me, you liken yourself to Joseph, especially Joseph in in Genesis 39 where Joseph fights off temptation, right, and is pure. When in fact, far too often, we haven't been real about the fact we're a lot more like Judah in Genesis 38. See, Joseph in the Joseph story is a picture of one to come. He's righteous. He's not perfect, but he's righteous. And a greater Joseph was coming who would redeem, who would feed, right, people in famine and all of that. That's Jesus. Jesus is the greater Joseph. We're not Joseph. We're Judah. But the beauty is that Jesus didn't descend from the line of Joseph. Jesus descended from the line of Judah. Sure, you're a sinner, but you can be redeemed. So much so that Jesus will work in and through your life just as he has for Judah. See, far from wanting to hide this sordid story from Jesus' genealogy, Matthew goes out of his way to remind his readers about it. Look, in Matthew 1.3, here's what it doesn't say. Judah, the father of Perez. Perez, the father of blah, blah, blah. No, it says, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. It doesn't need to men- mention Zerah. doesn't need to mention Tamar, but it does. Because Jesus came to give hope to the victim. Jesus is declaring, I am with you and I will heal you. And it's meant to recall the story of Judah and the fact that he was a victimizer and that there's hope for him and you too. There's hope and grace for you in Christ Jesus. So we're going to spend some time in response. We will have prayer people in different parts of the room. They'd love to pray with you. If you have been crushed by someone, if you have experienced injustice, and you've never really dealt with that, I encourage you to bring that to the Lord this morning. James chapter 5 says, pray for one another that you may be healed. I invite you to go and be prayed for this morning. Healing comes. Healing comes through prayer for one another. Also, if you have crushed someone and if you've blamed others for your sin, bring that to the Lord this morning. Here's my encouragement to you all, and I invite you to receive prayer for anything and to respond in worship in a moment. Here's my plea. Let Jesus examine your heart of repentance this morning. Let him examine your repentant heart this morning as you examine the wonder of the gospel yet again this morning. Let's pray, and then let's respond. Lord Jesus... We declare this morning, we have hope in you. The victims and the victimizers, we all can find hope in you. So Lord, we come to you repentant. We come to you with our burdens. We come to you with the wrongs that have been done against us and the wrongs that we have done against others. 
Lord, we come to you with desperate need, asking you to heal, asking you to redeem. And Lord, I pray if there are those in the room who have never given their life to Jesus, they would do that as well this morning. Turn to you in faith because you can heal and you can restore. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.